Welcome to the OKC First podcast. Together, we're learning to do three things. Friendship with God. Friendship with one another. And open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. Our scripture today comes from the book of Mark, chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. When they were approaching Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Just say, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here immediately. They went away and found a colt tied near a door outside in the street. As they were untying it, some of the bystanders said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? They told them what Jesus had said, and they allowed them to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the field. Then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest, heaven. Then he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Katie. You may be seated. We are... Still in the season of Lent, this is the last Sunday that we will be in this particular sermon series, The Devil in the Details. Let me say again about um, this week that it is a story that we will tell scene by scene by scene. I, I hope you will make plans to be with us as the story is unfolded for you scene by scene by scene. Today is the scene that has to do, obviously, with Palm Sunday, with the, with the uh, triumphal procession into the city. And then later on this week, we will get to, now not Wednesday night, because we're not going to be here Wednesday night, amen? Don't be here Wednesday night. But on Thursday night, where we would have typically done a Monday Thursday service, and we've had that in the atrium before, this time we're going to do a, a Seder supper. My Old Testament professor, Dr. Dennis Bratcher, and his wife, Robin Stevenson Bratcher, are going to lead us through a very important time on Thursday night. We kind of need to know if you're coming. So if you would let us know if you're coming, we want to be prepared because it's very interactive and there are resources available. So please let us know. I would suggest, I would suggest that you be a part of that Seder Supper that night. And then on Friday night, it'll be dark. It'll be quiet There will be a sense of hopelessness about it, and all of that is appropriate. It's a scene, it is a story that needs to be unfolded scene by scene by scene, and you will not get, you will not get the scene that we will unfold on Sunday morning if you skip the scene that we're going to unfold on Friday night. Uh, Please don't hear me uh, being super critical of other churches who will start, some of them on Friday, having their Easter services. I I don't want to be understood as being that critical of them except for this point right here. The brightness of Easter is appreciated against the backdrop of the darkness of Friday night. 
Please don't be the people who can't handle the darkness of Friday night, whose faith just jumps from highlight to highlight to highlight because honestly, at the end of the day, that's not real life. That's not real life. So please be a part of that scene that unfolds on Friday. And if you could be a part of the scene that unfolds on Saturday when we're here cleaning up the place and fixing things and moving things around and cleaning out closets, amen, then please be a part of that on Saturday and then I can't wait to see you on Sunday. Next Sunday morning, 8.30, in the atrium, Dr. Tashton and the Word and Table congregation is going to lead us through our sunrise service, the reintroduction of the Christ candle, and then at 9.30, a really good breakfast that would cost you tons of money somewhere else, a really good breakfast, but also opportunities to take family pictures there in the Cole Center, and then we'll meet in here and try to just kind of sing the roof off of this place. And if you know the Hallelujah Chorus, if you would kind of start limbering up now, we're going to have sort of a, what I call a barn-raising choir. If you have ever been a part of the Hallelujah Chorus, you are hereby deputized and recruited to be a part of that mm, kind of impromptu choir on that, that day. Uh, that's how we will actually close our time together. You ever heard of the phrase, uh, the devil made me do it? Yeah, I hate that one. <laughs> The devil made me do it. As best I can tell, it may not have been the first time it was ever uttered, but it was popularized by a comedian known uh, by the name of Flip Wilson, who in 1970, 1970, did a spot on the Ed Sullivan Show, did a little stand-up routine, and he complained about his wife buying a dress that they didn't have the money for. And he talked through that thing, and, and he started to use a voice that we were to understand to be her voice. And, and about every third line, she would say, well, I couldn't help because the devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. What do you think about that phrase? Does the devil make you do anything? There are some people who would say yes. There are some people who would say, yeah. The devil is in several details out there, and, and sure enough, there comes a point at which comes a point at which the devil causes me to do something that I would not have done otherwise, would not have done otherwise. And so you understand the cross and what it is that, that Jesus is trying to do to attack your behavior, and you understand faith to be about behavior modification. And hear me say this, there is some truth to that, but that does not capture or encapsulate all of the truth that we have in front of us when we talk about what it is that the cross seeks to do and what it is that all of faith seeks to do. And in order to make this case, and beware if you're new to our church, there might be an audible groan at this point. In order to make this case, I need to bring back the iceberg. <laughs> yeah. So those of you listening out there in podcast land, you don't know this perhaps, but in 2014 or 15, we had a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, and we used this particular image for weeks and weeks and weeks. So that's why you might have heard the groan, the, oh no, again, really the iceberg? But yes, the iceberg, because here's where actions take place, up at the tip of this iceberg. But below that are the motivations, the desires that give rise to the actions up top, but even below that. You have a story, a grand story, or a worldview. Your take on reality and what is real, where all the important words are defined. Success, failure, strong, weak, rich, poor. All of that and all of those definitions are dependent on a particular worldview or story there at the bottom. So your worldview there at the bottom gives rise to certain motivations. Motivations. 
And then those motivations give rise to certain actions and behaviors. A lot of us allow faith to confront us there at the top. God, please help me not to rob a bank this week. And hear me, if somehow you have in mind that you are going to rob a bank this week, please do not rob the bank this week. But I would say to you, it won't be until you allow this story, the story of the cross, the story of Christ, to confront you at the deepest levels. That's where the real change happens. Truth of the matter is, the cross, the cross, seeks to confront you not just at the, the area where the actions take place. The cross, the thinking, the theology of the cross seeks to confront you not just where motivations are kept. The cross confronts you where your worldview takes shape. The cross very well could challenge your understanding. Oh, hang on, buckle up. The cross is going to challenge your understanding of the truth and what's real and what's worthy. The cross has in mind to challenge how you put reality together. Man. The book of Mark understands this. In fact, the book of Mark understands that believing people sometimes are content to live just on top of the iceberg and to not allow God to have access to the lower parts of our individual icebergs. Brittany talked about it not too long ago. There are two different healing stories where people are healed of blindness in the book of Mark. Two different ones. On the first one, Jesus says, Bang. Does that help? Can you see? Are you okay? And the guy says, well, kind of. I see people, but they look like trees walking around. She's like, oh. We didn't quite get all of it. And he goes, bang, hits him again, and then he can finally see. Now, interestingly, after that, you have people who can kind of see, but not fully see. You have a rich young ruler who says, hey, I've been really good on top of that iceberg. I'm keeping all of these commandments, remember? And Jesus says, oh, well, you can kind of see, but not really fully see. And then the disciples, the disciples ask really dumb questions, right? Dumb questions like, hey, can we be in charge? In your kingdom, Lord, where you are in charge, can we help you to lead and rule? And Jesus says, ah, you, okay, you can kind of see, but not fully see. Kind of like the first blindness story, the first healing story, remember? And then you get to blind Bartimaeus at the end of chapter 10. At the end of chapter 10, blind Bartimaeus is sitting there in a very hopeless situation. Jesus is walking by as he and his disciples and a large crowd were leaving Jericho. Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the roadside. When he had heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout out and say, Jesus, son of David, already understanding to be Jesus to be somebody of great worth, perhaps even the Messiah, have mercy on me. Many sternly ordered him to be quiet, but he cried out even more loudly, which had to have been annoying. Son of David, have mercy on me. And it caught Jesus' attention. Jesus stood still and said, call him here. And they called the blind man saying to him, 
Take heart, get up, he is calling you. So, throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and he came to Jesus. Then Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? Boy, what a dangerous question. What a dangerous question that comes to each of us today. I said this to you earlier in the call to worship and I'm gonna say it to you every week because I'm gonna do the call to worship for a while here. Here's the the thing I'm gonna say to you. What do you want God to do for you? What do you expect that God will do for you? What does God want to do for you? What can God do for you? What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, my teacher, let me see and, and really see. Jesus said to him, go forth. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he regained his sight But the most important phrase is this one, and followed him on the way to the cross. It's not there, John. Yeah, it is. Keep reading. You see, some people get a little bit of faith. Bang. A little bit. They let God address them and access them and even confront them at the tip of their icebergs so that they can stop using bad words so that I can be responsible sexually, so that I can stop robbing banks. God wants your sense of reality, how you determine something to be true or not, good or not, right or not. God wants to do more for you than just modify your behavior. Now hear me, God wants to modify your behavior, but God knows you well enough to know that if I'm really going to modify your behavior, it will have something to do with transforming your character. And in order for your character to be transformed, God's gonna need more of your iceberg because what we're after here is not just good behavior. What we're after here are disciples who will follow all the way to the cross. Because when you really see Jesus, you go all the way to the cross, which is not great for you, until it is. I mess with you quite a bit when I am angling for amens and I get in trouble for it. You just need to know I get in trouble for it every Sunday when I angle for amens. I won't tell you who, but She's sitting on the front row. (laughs) It's not Katie. (laughs) I don't do what I do (laughs) in the hopes that you'll be better behaved. I'm not your pastor in the hopes that all of you will be shining examples of really kind well-behaved people. And that's a faith that I very nearly left even after coming here as a staff member. God made it clear to me that there was something harder but something more than that. Turns out God wanted more than just my inclinations toward evil. Turns out that God wanted my entire reality so that God's reality could in and through me shape all of reality. 
God does not want well-behaved people. God wants disciples. And disciples are disciples when they follow all the way here. And this is not good for you until it is. So what God wants from you is more akin to what blind Bartimaeus got. Bam, it was so good. Blind Bartimaeus saw no other alternative but to get up and follow Jesus all the way to the cross. Because, you guys, unless you're following Jesus to this ultimate place of self-sacrifice, you're not following Jesus. Now, you're probably asking Jesus to follow you. But unless it ends up here, you're not following. Because this is an odd way to be alive, amen? This is an odd way to go about being king, and this is what we're going to get into now. This is an odd way to go about being king. And what you have here in the book of Mark, it's really different here in the book of Mark than in the other gospels where we have this exact same story. It's a little bit different here. I found two commentators who said this. This is the Bible's best attempt at being funny. The Bible's best attempt at comedy. Because what's going on here is, in this little triumphal procession, Jesus is mocking Roman power, but also mocking Jewish power. In fact, Jesus is mocking power as the bottom of anybody's iceberg. A little bit of context. Roman emperors loved parades. Still, emperors love parades. A couple hundred years before this, he had a Jewish strongman by the name of Maccabeus who made his way from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem, right? With lots of fanfare, by the way, because he actually, with power, overthrew, overthrew the Syrian occupants of the city and the temple, overthrew them. And with swords and with blood and with muscles just overthrew them. And it really, really worked. It really, really worked for a few years. And so Jesus comes along and says, yes, I will be your savior, but it'll be salvation and a little differently done a little differently than you thought. And it'll be a kingdom a little different than the one that perhaps you want and you're aching for, believer. But it'll be salvation nonetheless. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go into town and find me a giant, giant white, just rippling with muscles, some sort of war steed, and then I want you to leave it right where it is. And then go a few stalls down and find me a colt that has never been ridden. Immediately mocking the people who've got to find the biggest, strongest, whitest horse. Find one of those. That will give the people an indication of what kind of king and what kind of kingdom we're about. And so he does. The disciples go in and they find this colt. They go in and they find this cult and they, they say, hey, the Lord has need of it. I promise we'll bring it right back. The Lord needs it. 
and we'll send it back here immediately. The disciples do exactly what they're told to do. They go and they get this particular colt. They bring it to Jesus. And Jesus sits on this colt and moves through the town in what we believe was a small enough parade that it did not draw the attention of the Roman Empire. Or if it did, it was so small and so perhaps even pathetic that the Roman Empire did not see fit to engage it, at least not that day. I mean, what did you think? We probably had a bigger parade today than they had then. Hmm. So they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it, and many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others had spread leafy branches then they, that they had cut in the field. So in other words, they made the way, right? They kind of made a way, made it soft, for this little cult carrying a person for the first time. And so it was something of a royal procession, right? I mean, you're supposed to understand that it is something of a royal procession, but you're supposed to understand it in a way that you kind of understand political cartoons. This was a royal procession that mocks royal processions, and it mocks people who ache for power parades. What makes the world go, y'all? What makes the world turn? What makes the world work? What is the truth, is another way to ask the question that I'm asking, what is the truth that orients and operates life? In the theology of materialism, the truth is the one who dies with the most toys wins. In the world where people play power games, the truth that operates life is, I must have more muscles or bullets than you because that's how we determine winners and losers. And the cross confronts that iceberg down there. The very bottom where you have determined what makes for the right kind of world. Now, it doesn't mean that at the top of your iceberg you aren't doing things that look fairly religious, right? Perhaps you're pretty good at waving a palm branch. Whoop. Pretty good at waving a, you know what? I know all the words to all the songs too. So you can, at the top of your iceberg, posture yourself and behave as someone who is deeply religious while all the time rejecting the cross at the bottom of your iceberg. And hear me, you can know all the songs and reject the cross because it's not about the top of your iceberg, it's about the bottom. What's the truth? How does the world work? What is right? How do we get from here to there? Christians, oh, some of you are bothered, I like that. Christians, how do we get from here to there? This is our answer. This is our first answer. In this little party, those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna. Now, that's an interesting word because broken into its most elemental parts, it actually means, please save us. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Wow, they might have been small, but perhaps they were onto something. <laughs> Blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna, there it is again, in the highest heaven. And here is the incredibly dramatic way that this entire triumphal procession ended. You ready? And then he entered Jerusalem and went to the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, it was already late. He went out to Bethany with the twelve. One of the commentators I read this week said, worst period, movie period, ending period ever, period. <laughs> because we like big endings. We like the fantastic displays of strength. We like when our side is more muscular than their side. We like defeating the other. We like winning more than losing. I have a dear friend who's always said, you win a few and you lose a few, but you hope you win more than you lose because if you don't, you're a loser. <laughs> we like to win. And we do. And there is victory. And there is celebration. But it is not on your terms. It is on his terms. He's right. The cross confronts your iceberg. Sure, at the top. More meaningfully, the cross confronts your iceberg at the very bottom where you ask and answer the questions, how does life work? How do we win? What makes for good life? And God help us this week, Holy Week. We're still in the Lenten season. We need one another. God help us this week because what we're doing this week if you're willing to pay attention, is we are most earnestly looking at Jesus, looking at ourselves, and confessing the difference. Does everybody know what happens this week? Friday. Friday, the Word made flesh, enters most fully and completely into human experience, real life like you're going to face today and tomorrow experience. And all of the contrary authorities and all of the contrary kingdoms are going to come up against our champion, and our champion is going to say, put your weapons away. I have this very unique way of fighting, says Jesus. Watch this. Watch me fight, says Jesus. Have you learned how to fight like this yet? Yeah, me neither. We're learning, aren't we? This week. 
God help us move us all closer to an understanding, not only of this way of fighting, but an understanding of how this way of fighting changes the world and you. Going to stop there. If you're helping us, would you please come to the table and help us prepare this meal? Heavenly Father, bless these elements. And as we take into our hands these very tangible expressions of broken body and then shed blood, spark our imaginations. Resource us, fuel us, God that we would have just enough energy this week to follow you. Remind us, God, how this very meal and all that it represents confronts, confounds what we might call conventional wisdom and confronts each of us and all of us, perhaps, where our individual icebergs of faith are concerned. With the bread and the cup, God, confront us at the deepest levels where we ask and answer the questions about what is and what is meaningful, what works. Confront us. At the same time, God, receive us. (laughs) We're not yet where you want us to be. We're not yet where we want to be. We're not yet where you need for us to be, and yet, may we understand this meal as another evidence that you are a companion on the journey toward Christ-likeness, and that this is an important step. In a moment, I'm gonna ask you to stand to your feet, to exit your pew to the left, and to come forward with your hands cupped, ready to receive a little piece of bread. As you approach somebody with a plate of bread, that person over here, it'll be Mason, who will take a piece of bread, snap it off, place it into your hands and say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. Hopefully, there'll be really good eye contact because it is stunning when there is really good eye contact. This is the body of Christ broken for you. Don't eat it just yet, but dip it into the cup. Someone standing right there will be holding a cup. When you do, Kristen perhaps will say to you, and this is the blood of Christ, shed for you. These are symbols of strength, but not strength in the way that perhaps you understand strength, but real strength. And then take and eat, and then find a place to pray, because if you're anything like me, there's some gaps there to narrow between who I am and who Christ is. So find a place to pray. If you go to one of these side padded altars, we will assume that you are there for a prayer for healing could be any kind of healing, physical, emotional, mental, relational, and someone will meet you there, anoint you with oil to remind you of the companionship of God this week. If you come to one of these front altars, we won't assume a thing, but somebody will pray with you at some point. You'll feel it. Hand on your head, back, neck, or shoulder. Perhaps you want to make a special trip up here to dip your fingers into this bowl of water meant to represent your baptism, and to help you remember that you are amongst the baptized, which means you live differently, oddly. And maybe you need this reminder to give you just enough courage and energy to do that this week. 
or you can circle right back around and go right back to your seats and I promise you God can still hear you even as you pray there. But do pray. It was on the night he was betrayed that our Savior took bread. He blessed it and he broke it. Gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body. Broken for you. And every time you eat of it, remember me. Later on he would take the cup, hold it up before them and say, and this is my blood. The blood of a new covenant now shed for you. And every time you drink of it, Remember me. Who's welcome at this table? If you understand your need for grace, it doesn't matter what you did this morning or yesterday. If you know your need for grace, you're welcome here. If you can't come to us, Jason and Katie are coming to you. And now I would invite you, church, to stand to your feet. Exit your pew to the left. Come forward with your hands cupped, ready to receive these gifts of God, meant to resource and nourish the people of God to be the people of God. Comes like a flood, 
comes flowing down at the cross at the cross i surrender my life i'm in all of you i'm in all of you where you Father, we confess we confess that we have it in us to reduce faith to behavior modification. We confess that we have it in us, uh, I, at least I confess that I have it in me, to at times want to protect the very bottom of that iceberg. Because at times, God, I find it, I'm sure there are others of us who find it very difficult to completely swallow what it is that you have to say about strength and weakness, about love for enemies. We love the stories, God, about how generous and enthusiastically generous and sacrificial this Jesus seems to be. It is a challenge the moment we understand that there's something about this Jesus that should also be reminiscent of my own life. That's when we start to limit the scope of love. That's when we start to compartmentalize. We allow ourselves to be Christian in certain contexts and then something other, in Christian, other than Christian in other contexts. We don't get it. We don't want to get it. But there are many of us in the room who wish we did want to get it. And so our prayer, my prayer today, Lord, is for those of us who do desperately want to narrow who you are and who I am, but also for all of those who wish they wanted such a thing. Walk with us this week. Be a companion to us this week, as I know you will, and navigate us through wisdom to wisdom. And now hear us, God, as we pray for one another. As we move into these moments of prayers of intercession, I believe God's already moving ahead of us. And in your mind, in these moments of prayer, in these moments of contemplation, God has been placing someone in your heart and in your mind who needs you to pray for them in these moments, who needs for you to lift them up to the Lord. And so as God places that person, that situation, that's dear to your heart, would you lift them up to the Lord in these moments as Mark plays?
name that God brought to my heart was Ken Hardy. I'm sure many of you prayed along with me for God's healing of Ken. And now in these moments, as we have begun this Holy Week, the challenge that Christ gives us in the Sermon on the Mount and throughout his life to be people who would pray for their enemies confronts us. And so in these moments, would you have the courage maybe to pray for your enemies in your life and those who give you the most trouble? And that can be your enemy, your opposite, or your irritant. Could you in these moments choose a place to pray for? That can be a school, that can be your city, that can be a neighborhood. It can be a world area like Zambia or Toronto. But a place that you would ask God in these moments that would come to your heart and pray for. Would you pray for those places all across the world now? And as we've done each Sunday of Lent, we've had a moment of lament in our prayer, a pause even in Mark playing, just moments of about 60 seconds of silence, where we look at a situation in our life, our neighborhood, our state, or our world, and we say, this is not the way it should be, God. And would you do something about it? And so in these moments of silence, would you bring a situation, a space, a person, in your life, and would you bring that lament to God in these moments as we lament together in a season of Lent? Now, as we close in prayer, we'll pray that prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. We'll use that prayer using, we'll pray that prayer using debts and debtors. And if you're unfamiliar with the prayer, it should be in the screen in front of you. Let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven. Deliver us. 